This is a great time of year. We've got a lot of great things coming up. Next Sunday, uh, you know, our new stage is ready. So next Sunday, there's going to be choir and orchestra up here doing some fantastic music about the, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Friday, I'm sorry, Saturday night and two services Sunday morning. So hope you'll be here, invite others with you. Um, and then in two weeks, we've got another concert on Sunday night with a, an outside group called This Hope. Coming up in January, we're starting a new year, of course. You know what? Everybody's starting a new year, to come to think of it. But in 2019, we've got an emphasis for our church where we're challenging each of our members, all of us, to do four things in our relationship with Christ. Maybe four things that you've never done before. And this could be the biggest, best, in terms of your spiritual life, year of your life. So if you need more information, and many of you do, there's a table right outside that door. If you go out the door and turn to the right, there's a table that says all in. It's got materials there that can give you information on all the different challenges we're offering and, and inviting you to take. Uh, pick up some materials today. If you've already been by there, we're adding to it each week. So go by and see if there's something new. All right? Well, let's turn to the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to, for the next few weeks between now and Christmas, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And these are words that we read and hear a lot at Christmas time, especially when you get to verses 6 and 7. You might recognize these words. Maybe you didn't know they were from the Bible. Maybe you didn't know they were from Isaiah in particular. But we're going we're gonna to try to take a look at what they mean, why God put this in his word, why he inspired it in the first place. So I'm going to start with Isaiah 9 verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. For us... To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So you've heard those words, verses 6 and 7. Maybe you've gotten them in a Christmas card. Maybe you've heard it if, you've, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah or in other Christmas carols it's referenced. Maybe you've seen it uh, on a church sign or somewhere. For us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But what do they mean? What is this about? Why did God inspire these words? Let's take off all the holly and ivy and all the snow dusting and all the, all the Christmassy stuff regarding this verse. And let's, let's just talk about what the situation, the circumstance was that these words were written. Because they have something very important to say to us today, just as they did 700 years before the birth of Christ. So I need to start by, by just putting us on the same plane. I, I need for us to acknowledge something that's true about us that we have in common because we're human beings. And that is this. You ready for this? 
whenever we have a problem and, and there's a human solution to the problem, there's a thing we can do. There's always some solution, some step we can take. The thing we know we need to do the most is the thing we least want to do. Do you identify with what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. And I'll start with an example that doesn't involve you. It involves somebody else. Uh, and so this will go down easier. So this involves my son, Will. So when Will was little, he's kind of gotten over this now, but when Will was little, he really, really hated homework. Now, he hates homework now, too. Don't get me wrong. But he's, he's kind of owned up, and he, he gets it done, and we don't have to prod him anymore. But for a long, long time, homework was a nightly form of torture for him and us. Because my son, who's ordinarily very, very easygoing, very, very calm, you know, just handles things well, he, every night, he would get really upset about his homework. And he would fuss, and he would whine, and he'd complain, and he'd get loud, and he's not usually a loud person. And he'd say things like, oh, why do I have so much homework? And oh, oh, this is so awful. I just hate this so much. Or my personal favorite thing he ever said regarding this is, if I had a time machine, I'd go back in time and find the person who invented homework and I'd kill them. <laughs> Which I think is pretty genius, honestly. But And so we'd always, every night was the same thing. And every night we'd say the same thing to him. We'd say, well, just do the homework. I mean, that's, that's the problem. If you just get it done, you know it's going to be there. You know you're going to have homework. It's just a fact of life. You complaining about it doesn't change it. So just, just do it. I mean, and I would say to him probably a hundred times, I said to him, you know, if you'd started doing your homework when you started complaining, you'd already be done by now. It never really clicked with him. And I understood why, because I was the same way when I was his age. In fact, I was the same way much longer than he was. I mean, I, it took me much longer than it has taken him to finally clue in. Because I can remember as a kid, sitting at my parents' kitchen table, and, and you know, this big sheet of math problems in front of me, and just kind of staring at them, thinking, you know, Lord, why? Why did you even invent math? This doesn't, this has nothing to do with life. I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And, and just brooding over it, not doing it. Meanwhile, my dad's in there, Monday night football started. I can hear, dun, 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 dun. and I'm going, oh no, I can't watch football. And, here's this. and meanwhile, I could have just done the problems. And you know what happened then? I don't do the problems. I get a zero. Six weeks pass. My parents get a phone call from the school. They're like, Jeff made a, and I can't watch football for six weeks, right? Just because I didn't do the one simple thing just do my problems. Now, this is true in a lot of our lives in various ways. And I'm, I'm okay, I'm going to start meddling. Here's a warning. But some of us have health issues. Now, obviously, not all health issues are our fault. But some of us have health issues where our doctor says, you know what? These numbers would get better if you would just take care of yourself a little better. These, these issues you're having can be managed, but I need some help from you. And we know what we need to do, right? We need to eat less and we need to exercise more. Do we do that? No, of course not. We keep sitting back and, and wishing that bran muffins and broccoli tasted like bacon and bluebell, right? And it ain't going to happen. But we keep just sitting and thinking, okay, you know, I just don't want to do what I have to do. Or we have this debt that's just been mounting and mounting and mounting and since the first time we bought, got a credit card when we were uh, 18 or whatever. And we know what to do. I, when we see that, that looming disaster, that catastrophe coming towards us, we know what needs to happen, right? Stop buying shoes. 
Stop going on cruises. Don't trade in your new, your, your perfectly fine car for a newer model. You, you don't have to do that. Just cut back for a while, pay down the debt, get out. Do we do that? No. There's those Joneses over there. We got to keep up with them. There's this lifestyle we got to maintain. Or we have an issue in one of our important relationships. Someone we love, someone important to us, is at odds with us right now. And there's no pain like that kind of pain. There's no pain. I mean, I can handle debt. I can handle illness. But if someone I love is mad at me or I'm mad at them or we're not talking, man, that's the worst. And I know what I need to do. I need to sit down and say, okay, here's what I did wrong. Or I need to say, hey, let's sit down and work this out together. Or I need to say, listen, I forgive you. Or I'm sorry. I know the steps I can need to take. Do I do that? No. Because it's so much easier to just sit back and say, she's so stubborn. He's the worst. It's so much easier to do nothing than it is to do the one thing that you know you need to do. Now, does anybody identify with me on this, or is this just me? I got a news for you. It's not just me, because I'm your pastor. I see you. I see what's going on, all right? And if you don't, okay, you can probably think of the situation in your life that I'm talking about, but if you can't, and you're married, your spouse knows. Just ask her. If you're not married, your parent knows, or your best friend knows, or your boss knows. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this, the, the whole point of all this is the book of Isaiah, at least the first part. I mean, Isaiah is a big book. It was written over many, many decades. But the first part of the book, especially chapter 9, were written, was written when a guy named Ahaz was king of Judah. Now, I'm going to show you a map in just a second. In fact, let's show that map right now. So, in the map, you see the, the bottom where it says Kingdom of Judah in kind of the light blue? And then on top it says Kingdom of Israel? So, at a certain point in history, some of you know this, God's people fractured. There was a division within the nation of Israel. So, the ten northern tribes of Israel formed their own country, and the tribe of Judah that David was from, that ultimately Jesus would come from, formed its own nation in the bottom. It was just them and Benjamin in that little country in the bottom. So they still had a king on the throne who was a descendant of David. So they were still sort of the legitimate people of God. But Ahaz was now king. And Ahaz was not a good king. He was a godless man. His grandfather and father had been worshipers of Yahweh, but he wasn't. And something bad was happening. So here's the situation. You see those, see right next to Israel, the brown country, it says Kingdom of Aram Damascus. That's also known as Syria. Those two countries got together. Israel and Aram slash Damascus got together and they said, we're going to conquer Judah. And so Ahaz, king of Judah, says, oh no, now there's this big army that's about to invade my country. I don't know what to do. In fact, he got so desperate, this irreligious man went to Isaiah the prophet, the man who had advised his dad, for the very first time, he says, listen, I need God's help. What can we do? So what does Isaiah do? He consults the Lord. And he comes back to Ahaz and he says, I've got great news for you. You don't have to do anything. In fact, if you do something, it'll be a mistake. Don't raise an army. Don't write for help to someone else. Don't do anything. If you just trust in God right now, he's going to take care of those two enemies of yours. He's going to put them to shame and you're going to be safe. So all you got to do is trust the Lord. Now, question, and I, I want an out loud answer. Do you think that Ahaz did what God said? Raise your, raise your hand if you think Ahaz did what God said. 
Okay, raise your hand if you don't think he did what he said. Yeah, y'all are good. Y'all are good. So, yeah, Ahaz was like, okay, thanks, Isaiah, but I, I just really can't trust in the Lord. I've never really tried that before. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to scrape up all the gold in my kingdom. In fact, I'm going to rob my own temple, the temple of the Lord, of all its gold, and I'm going to send it to Assyria. So look up at the north, the very, very top of the page, or the top of the map. There's that little yellow sliver that says Assyrian Empire. That's the very, very bottom of an empire, which at that time was massive. If, if we were to expand out from that map, we would see the Assyrian Empire would be multiple times bigger than all those other countries combined. And Assyria was a kingdom that was so warlike, they just, all they were about, they didn't care about money, they didn't care about any of that stuff, all they, they just wanted land. They just wanted to conquer and enslave people. They just liked killing and so Ahaz sends gold to the Assyrian emperor, and he says, I got a problem on my hands. Can I hire your army? Can you come, and can you fight my enemies for me? Now, did that help? Did that solve his problem in the short term? Yeah, in the short term it helped, because he came and he whipped Israel and Syria. The problem is, bringing in Assyria to be on your side is a lot like owning a home that is filled with mice, and you bring in a live cougar to take care of your mouse problem. Yeah, it'll probably take care of the mice, but you've got a bigger problem on your hands, and that's exactly what happened. Because now you've got this big, bad empire that has turned its attention upon you because you wouldn't do the one thing you needed to do, which is trust in the Lord. So, Isaiah is writing Isaiah 9 in a time when the people of God have failed. They had a simple solution, and they didn't take it. And this is a time of national disgrace. For Isaiah, it's a time of deep disappointment. And he says... But God has shown me that someday there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. Even though you've let us down, even though you've let the Lord down, he has not forgotten you. He's going to send you his Messiah someday in the future. And I'm hoping the people who are alive when that happens will read my words and will receive him differently than Ahaz received me. So think about the failures that you and I have made. Think about the times we've done what we shouldn't have done or, or didn't do what we should do. And listen to these words again through the, through the mind of Isaiah. He says in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. So the first thing, what, what does Jesus bring to us? Three things. The first thing, he brings us a fresh start. For people who've failed, for people who've made bad decisions, for people who've ruined everything, he brings you a second chance. A lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think that, that Christianity is just like all other religions, and it's a, a list of rules, and if you follow these rules, you'll make yourself right. If you go to church often enough, God will look kindly on you. And that's how religion works, yes, but that's not how Jesus works. Jesus says, no, I, I, it's not what you do, it's what I've done. I come and give you a fresh start. So what is this verse 1 about when it talks about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali? Some of you are like, man, that sounds like places in Star Wars or Narnia or Middle Earth. No, these are the names of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the Jewish people basically got their start with 12 brothers, 12 sons of Jacob, also named Israel. So they were the children of Israel. These 12 men, their progeny became the 12 tribes. So Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those brothers. And when, hundreds of years later, when the people of God first came into the land that is today Israel, they divided up the country, and Zebulun and Naphtali said, yeah, we'll take, we'll take that part up in the north. 
Well, guess what happened when Assyria invaded Israel? The first place they hit, the first place they got wiped out was the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, the way people's theology worked back then, they said, oh, look at those people in those regions. They died first. So that means God must really be mad at them. That's not true. That's not the way God works, but that's the way people thought. Meanwhile, years passed, and that became known as Galilee. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that became known as the region of Galilee. And as Isaiah calls it here, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, because since it was so far north, because it had been invaded so long ago, it was a place with more non-Jews than most parts of Israel. So because of that, because of that history, because of the demographics of that region, and because it was far north and, Israel, and Jerusalem was down in the south, so think about that, Jerusalem was where the temple was. The temple was where the Jews believed God lived. So if you were a really righteous Jew, you should want to live down there in Judea so you can be close to the temple. No, these Galileans live way up in the north, far from the temple, so they must love God less. All these things combined meant that on the day Jesus first met a guy named Nathaniel in the book of John, Nathaniel looked at him and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you're a Galilean. It's well known the Galileans are, are the worst Jews of all. You're the least godly. Can you possibly be the Messiah? And yet, everything changed once Jesus came along. Several years ago, I got to go to Israel. In the first few days we were there, we were in the city of Jerusalem, which is amazing. If you ever get a chance, go. But the last part of our journey was going to be in Galilee. And as much as I enjoyed Jerusalem, I couldn't wait to get to Galilee. Why? Because that's where Jesus was from. Because that's where he walked on the water. That's when he, where he did most of his miracles. He redeemed the reputation of an entire part of the world. And not only that, he redeemed every person who ever accepted his love. Think about Mary Magdalene. What do we know about Mary? She was possessed by seven demons. She was literally a walking lunatic. She was discarded by society, and yet Jesus comes into her life. She becomes perhaps the closest, most loyal follower he ever had. She didn't run away at the cross like the male disciples did. She was there, the first one to witness his resurrection. Think about Peter, Simon Peter, who if you read the Gospels, you'll think, how did anybody ever think it was a good idea to put this guy in charge of anything? This guy who couldn't shut up, who always said the wrong thing, who boasted of being brave but ran away from every fight, and yet he becomes the rock upon which Jesus builds the church. There's a story in the, in the Gospels of a woman whose name we don't even know, who her whole identity is she is a quote-unquote sinful woman, which in that time, in that, in that motif, in that venue, meant she had committed some sexual sin, probably prostitution. We don't know. But here she is. She's known for that. People don't even know her name. They're just like, oh, she's dirty because of the things she did. Maybe even the things she continues to do. And yet she runs into Jesus and everything changes. And there's this great story where Jesus is in the home of this devout religious man and this woman crashes the party and pours over his head a bottle of the most expensive perfume you can buy, the, probably the most valuable thing she owns. And Jesus, everybody's shocked that he'll let this woman touch him. And he says, don't, listen, you don't understand. She's been forgiven much and so she loves much. And as long as stories are told, her story will be told. And he's right. See, I could, I could stop now and I could just open up the microphone and say, anybody whose life has been changed by Jesus Christ, come and tell your story. And we'd be here, I guarantee you, the rest of the day. 
And you'd hear some amazing stories. You look around in this room and you don't even know, I don't even know, the changes that God has brought about in the lives of people in this room, young and old, rich and poor. Has he done that for you? Don't, don't tell me what church you're a part of. Don't tell me when you got baptized. Not that those things aren't important, but has he changed your life? Because that's, that's what he came to do. Didn't come to make you just religious. Anybody can do that. He came to change you, to bring you a fresh start. He also came to bring us joy. That's what verses 2 and 3 are about. It talks about walking in darkness and, and a great light has dawned on us, on these countries, where, on these people who were so oppressed, who saw no hope. Suddenly, there's hope. And notice in verse 3, it says, you've enlarged the nation, you've increased the joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Notice, he's talking in past tense. Like these things have already happened, even though he's talking about things that won't happen for hundreds of years. Because when God plans something, it's going to take place. When God promises something, it's guaranteed. You can have joy. Notice also the, the, uh, the metaphors he uses. He says it's like when people rejoice at the harvest. Now, I know some of you grew up in the country like me, and maybe you grew up around, around livestock or around farming of some kind, but probably nobody in this room, maybe a few, but very few of that, grew up in, in a society where farming was how you made your living. I mean, literally, there was nothing else. That was your whole income. That was most of the people of Israel in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day. And we don't know what it's like to think, you know, one plague of bugs and I could starve to death. One bad frost, one lousy harvest, and my family could die. But that's the way these people lived. So think about what it was like on harvest day when you think, hallelujah, I've made it, all this work and, and all these crops survived, and now here's the harvest, here's the fruit of my labor. My family will live. That's the kind of joy he's describing. Or he says it's like when warriors rejoice at the end of a battle. Most of us have never been in war. Some in this room have, but most have not. If you've ever been in combat, people who have will tell you. I haven't, but they'll tell you. It is terrifying. Now imagine when the battle's over and you look around and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm still here. I made it. The enemy has fled. We're going to win. We're going to survive. Think about the joy, the relief, the exhilaration. What is God promising us here? Is he saying, okay, once Jesus comes, everybody's just going to be happy all the time? No, he's not. You read the New Testament, there's sorrow in following Jesus, but joy is regardless of your circumstance. Let me say that a different way. It's easy to be happy when you're perfectly healthy, when you've got more money than you need, and everybody likes you. It's easy to be happy in those moments. Joy, the joy only God can give, is true when everybody hates you, when your body's breaking down, when you don't have enough money to pay your bills. Joy is the joy that says, I'm still rejoicing. I've still got more than I deserve. I've still got a reason to be excited about getting up in the morning. You may think that's impossible, but Jesus can bring that kind of joy to you. That's the promise of Isaiah 9, 2 through 3. He will bring you joy in the midst of your darkness. In the letters of Paul, we read something interesting. Now, remember, Paul was a guy who didn't start out joyful at all. He was the paragon of the angry religious guy. He knew the Bible really well. He kept the word. And he hated people who weren't like him. And then Jesus came into his life and everything changed. 
And at the end of his life, he's writing these letters about, here I am in prison, and here's these people who I've converted, people who were my former guards and others who worked in the prison, and now they're my fellow believers. How does that happen? It happens because those guards said, we've never seen anything like this. Here's a guy who's lost everything, and yet he's got more joy than I've ever had. Why, what do I have to do to have what you have? And we should have that kind of joy as believers in Jesus. My challenge to you is, if you're struggling right now, or someday you find yourself in a hole, it's not wrong to say, Lord, help me get out of this, help me get me through this. But at the same time, the wise person prays, Lord, help me to find joy right now. Don't wait on God to answer your prayer for your circumstances to change. Just say, Lord, teach me joy now, because that's what the world is looking for. He brings joy, he brings a fresh start, and finally, he brings freedom. He brings freedom. Verse 4 begins with these words, For as in the day of Midian's defeat. What the heck is that about? What is Midian? It's a reference to a story in the book of Judges. One of my favorite stories about a guy named Gideon. Gideon, who by his own admission was a weakling and a coward who just had no potential for great leadership. And yet... God comes to him and says, I'm going to use you, Gideon, to win a great battle for me. And here's the situation. It's Gideon, the weakling, and 300 men armed only with torches and trumpets against an army of Midianites that the Bible says were like the sand on the seashore, too many to be counted. And Gideon and his friends win because God's just like, I'm going to really show off right now. I want to show you how powerful I am. And so imagine what it's like if you're an Israelite at that time and you're having to live in a cave because if you're living out in the open, the enemy comes by and steals all your stuff and, and grabs your wife and assaults her and, and steals your children and sells them to slavery. So you've been living in a cave for months and suddenly you hear this news. Hey, Gideon and his 300 men won. Hey, the Midianites are gone. Imagine coming out of that cave, blinking your eyes at the sunlight because you haven't seen sun in a while, and walking up and finding a, a bunch of spears laying on the ground and snapping them over your knees and finding a bunch of clothes that the enemy left behind and heaping them in a pile and burning them and just saying, we're free. That's the freedom Christ came to bring to us. That's freedom that says, I know I'm a sinner, but it doesn't matter anymore because Christ has forgiven me, and he's building me into a person who says no to those temptations. I don't care that I'm going to die someday because my death is just a graduation to a better life. Through Christ's death and resurrection for me, I know something better is coming. I don't care whether uh, what the world says about me. I used to obsess over whether I become successful and whether people are pleased with me. But now I've got a God who has a plan for my life. And if I just trust him and follow him, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, I know I'm going to accomplish eternally significant things. There's freedom. As Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. But think about what that cost him. Let me just close with this. Imagine you have a neighbor, and you know that your neighbor's in an abusive relationship. You hear the screaming, you see the signs, and you stay out of it because it's none of your business. But one day, one day you see her outside that house, and she's weeping, and she's bleeding, and you know, you know, you've got a choice to make. You know you should do something. You know you should step in. But at the same time, if I step in, that brings me into that situation. That means that he's going to have it in for me. He's going to come after me. He might be pounding on my door tonight. He might kick in my door and come after us. What do you do? 
God looked down on us when we were under the oppression and domination of our own sin. We were in an abusive relationship with our own sin nature that was condemning us to a lifetime of misery and an eternity of hell. And Jesus could have said, that's not my problem. Because honestly, it wasn't. But instead, he said, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to come into their world, even though it's going to cost me everything. Because that's how much they mean to me. And at Christmas, that's what we remember, that God didn't stay distant. He didn't stay removed. He didn't stay safe. He became a human being. He took on flesh and blood that could be beaten, that could be crucified, that could die. He got involved in our lives so we could be free.